The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Well, this is a center where the practice of mindfulness is taught. And the fact that you're all sitting here on this gorgeous early spring evening suggests that you are solely lacking in mindful awareness of what is, how lovely it is outside. So it's all about connecting to the physical senses. 70 degrees, nice. Not so nice here. Um, Oops. And so on. The chirping of the birds is nice. My voice is certainly not chirping. Um, my name is Ramesh. Um, <clears throat> I, my background, um, I'm, I've been coming to Common Ground for about 15, 16 years. Um, I currently serve on the board. Um, I do a few workshops on the body and chronic pain. And uh, I sub for Mark along with a team of other teachers. Um, I see some familiar faces, so uh, forgive me if I have to repeat some of my bio. Um, I don't want to shock the others who are not familiar with me. They don't know what lies ahead. Um, so I, my, I, I don't sit here as a teacher uh, in terms of having read the suttas or some theoretical aspects of mindfulness practice. I just uh, share what I'm dealing with and uh, just some personal experience and then um, hopefully save you the trouble of having to figure things out on your own. And more importantly, some of the things that I share with you about my practice hopefully stimulates you because at the, end of mind, uh, at the end of the day, mindfulness is not about you being mindful of what I experienced. It's you being mindful of what's going on in your life. So. And the talk that I'm, I'm going to give today um, is something I do about once a year, about this time of year. And it comes um, from a, a kind of a recurrent theme in my practice uh, which is that there seems to be a plateau. And the plateau can be either a sense of, you know, I'm trying but not getting anywhere, or more the kind of metaphysical doubts about what's the point of doing this. You know, I'm no wiser, I'm no calmer, um, but you know, what's the point of doing this? Why, why am I sitting here as opposed to out on either of those two bars? Um, so, but there has to be some reason, and there is a reason why you're all here. The first comment of mine was somewhat facetious, but there was something that made you decide to shed all that and come in here. And so therein lies. So even in the moment of some confusion, there is so much wisdom to be learned. And so that's what I want to share with with you. And the more I reflected, I realized that this is not just a a phenomenon with um, mindfulness practice, but many other aspects of our life where there comes a time when you wonder, why am I doing this? Uh, a very kind of a, I think, vivid example for some of you, especially those of you who are in a committed relationship, is after five years, ten years, what is it that makes you stick to some of the commitments you made? So the first year of my marriage, you know, do the dishes, help with the trash, um, you know, don't cheat, don't be rude. All those principles of marriage made sense. But in the 24th year of my marriage, Really, do I need to do, still do the dishes? You know, all kinds of reasons come up about why I shouldn't be. By the way, I'm holding on to all those principles, but uh, but is that what 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 keeps the momentum going? And so that so I realize that there are many other aspects of life as well where there are these elements that are the components of a certain commitment 
but to keep the commitment going, it's not sufficient to just keep doing those components mechanically. So let's come back to mindfulness practice. So, um, so one way is that you, those of you, this applies to those of you who've done this for at least six months. And I suspect that you hit that wall of, do I need to come to Common Ground on Wednesday or Sunday? Or do I need to sit down today or one day will not stop me from nirvana? You know, maybe tomorrow I'll do 45 minutes instead of 20 minutes. You know, all those kinds of stories. Um, or you say, you know, I, I believe this to be good. I'm going to do it. But then you get to the point of it becoming mechanical. It becomes striving. It becomes effort. And it's just, you know, I'm going to sit here 20 minutes, watch the breath, and you're completely unaware of all the tightness that's building up in your body. Uh, that's what I, through the guided meditation, I was pointing to that aspect of the practice where if it is devoid of awareness, then it just becomes a mindless technical skill and potentially causing us harm if you're not aware of the resistance that's building up. Some of the outward signs could be, by the way, anything that I'm sharing now is something I've gone through many cycles. This, this is 16th year of practice, so trust me, this is like eight or nine cycles of it, if not more. So one is um, suddenly a teacher that I found very stimulating for about six, seven months, now I've heard it all. So I'm, not, I'm just listening to him, but it's just the message is not getting through. It's, it's kind of passively going through. Or uh, some of you may be more eclectic, and you said, you know, Vipassana, Shipassana, I've done this. I'm going to go try some Zen, or I'm going to try some Tibetan or um, you know, some other, uh, other practice. Or you, um, Dharma seed is good in terms of variety, but it can become a Walmart shopping place, and for free as well. So you, get, you can classify, you can pick and choose, so you can spend you know, weeks on dharmaseed.org mindlessly listening while you're doing dishes or while you're writing emails. It can be a kind of a passive process. And then I mentioned earlier about some of you, if, you're in, if your life circumstances are such that there was a hope that this practice would lead to some wisdom, some sense of dealing with the angst of life, uh, whether it's geopolitics or you know, uh, you know, injustices of life, you are hoping that by doing this, I'd have a sense of wisdom, some energy, so I could relate to the world better. And then you find that two, three years into practice, nothing out there has changed, and you're still ticked off as ever. Because again, the goals, you mistook the outcome for the, the process for the outcome. So you sit down, and you have an outcome already in mind that I will be relating better to politics, social injustice, etc. And so, so it's, these are all pointers to what's happening here. And that's why it took me many years to realize that this sense of boredom, restlessness, jumping around are all indicators of what's happening here. But during those early years, my mind was always focused on what's happening out there. So it was always a problem out there. It was always a problem of my skill and as opposed to my body and mind are just the way they are right now. In this moment in my life, after a year of practice, it's getting bored, it's getting restless, and instead of watching the mechanics of this boredom and restlessness, my mind got caught in the story of why am I restless, and then it's always going on the outside. The good thing was that after the first few years of experiencing this plateau, when I would just fall out the wagon, not come back to common ground for weeks and months, um, and then, you know, something hits you. You realize that 
not being connected to this was worse than being connected to this, and so you come back. But then after a while, you know, Einstein's definition of insanity, you can't keep doing the same thing and experience a different result. And so you realize that the body and the mind is giving you signals. The signal about the next step of the mindfulness practice is in that moment of restlessness and boredom and doubt. Um, so I'll pause here just a quick few couple of seconds of how many of you can relate to some aspect of what I'm uh, just describing. So you, most of you have done this for a while. Okay. So, and, and so the first kind of message I'd give you is uh, don't waste a good opportunity. Uh, this is a this is dukkha at its, you know, at its core because dukkha is a clash between the circumstances and your mind's expectations. So whenever you're feeling this, then instead of cussing the distress or focusing on something outside that's causing you distress, come back to the experience of distress itself. Even if it's just for five, seven minutes at a time, but there you begin to do the true mindfulness practice. So I find that for me there are um, two kinds of this plateau. Uh, one is the, uh, the agitated kind, uh, where there is just too much striving. Um, and it's usually at a time when lots of things are going on in my life, and I have subconsciously come to look at this practice as a way of dealing with my stresses in life. So I'm asking too much of it, but because there's a pace at work or family, etc., I bring the same energy to practice, it becomes striving, it becomes goal-directed. And without realizing it, I become completely mindless because it's another thing I have to do in order to get somewhere. And you miss the boat, that the doing is in the experiencing of, in my current circumstances of life, given the pressures at work, family issues, etc., this is what's happening right now. So for me to sit and expect my mind and body to be in some other state is creating that friction and creates more dukkha. I mean, as it is, my work is causing dukkha, and then I bring dukkha here by expecting mindfulness to fix problems relating to work. And then either if I, you know, it was in the last four or five years where I thought I was a fairly committed practitioner, when I wasn't aware of this friction, is when I would sit and then start developing tension in the body and didn't realize until later that the practice of meditation, the striving, was causing tension because where does that energy go? I could have, in fact, I could have done better by sitting in front of the TV and yelling at uh, you know, some politician. It's at least releasing the tension. You know, you, it's like displacing. I can't yell at people at work, but if I yell at somebody else, at least there's some release. That's how jogging and some of the other techniques, there's some release. Whereas here, I'm sitting in the confines of a quiet room, dark room, and there is no venting, and I'm not aware of the tension building up. So it's, it's important to be aware of it and then have some skills to counter it. The... Um, the other thing is the, so one is the agitated kind of plateau, and the other one is the kind of apathetic kind of plateau. Um, that can happen in times of busyness when you just say, I give up, or it happens when actually things are going well. And then what the mind does is it gets into the rut of comfort, of a practice. 30 minutes of just sitting and watching the breath can, can be done very mechanically without any awareness at all. 
and it just becomes a mechanical habit of passivity. And then, then from that, you have this false expectation that if I just keep doing this, somehow I'll be enlightened, or somehow I'll have the wisdom to deal with something that life will throw later on. And so, this is a state that this can reflect one or two things in the mind. One is that the mind is, has created a cocoon in which it is comfortable only in the comfort zones of life. So you don't start scraping some of the aspects of your life where you start feeling the pain, whether it's some relationship or whether it could be you know, climate change or anything big where you found that whenever you try to deal with those things, those are painful. And you find that if I just sit and meditate, that, that pain goes away. But the pain has gone away because you've numbed yourself to the pain. So there's not really a connection to the reality of things, but numbing, and it can become a comfortable state, and you can even feel yourself saintly. You can say, oh, I'm at peace with social injustice, all the inequalities of life, climate change. You know, it's how things are. It's causes and conditions. And what happens is then you really don't engage in stuff. And then we can... It's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm not saying that's bad, but if you really want to connect with things the way they are, then this state is a way of actually numbing yourself. So from time to time, it's good, but if this becomes your mode, then you're not really breaching that barrier because your body and your mind are telling you anytime you go into that area, you feel the pain and the wall comes up. And the other thing, uh, the other aspect of apathetic kind is really putting the cart before the horse of you determine what the goals of meditation are. Again, going back to the guided, uh, the sit that I, the guided um, guidance I gave earlier, it is that somehow you decide what the outcome of this meditation is going to be, and it will always disappoint you, because any outcome that you decide is a product of this messed up mind that does not see the things the way they are. So if it doesn't, if the data points are inaccurate, your outcome that you decide are going to be inaccurate. So that then can lead to what's the point kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I'm never going to be enlightened. I'm 53 years old. May as well enjoy the rest of my life in hedonistic pleasure. Um, but given the fact that, again, you're here on a 70-degree day, you are not of that kind. Even if you go to the bar, by the time you downed your first beer, you'll be wondering, why did I come here? I should have sit, sat through this. So there is something about our mindset that is not satisfied with the way things are. You're curious, but then if you don't get the quick answers, we can fall a prey to this doubt, whether it could be kind of a metaphysical doubt about what's the point, or a self-doubt about what's the point, me trying because I don't have what it takes. And then it can, you can fall off the wagon pretty quickly. Any Questions, comments, observations? This is going to be a pretty relaxed talk today, so.
Yeah, so the question was, you know, there's so much uh, focus or emphasis on connecting with the body. And so, uh, but if you've done this practice for a while, you know that what presents in the body uh, is usually the result of something underlying, something psychological, something historical, genetic. So is it sufficient just to connect to the body, or should we go behind that? Um, so to your question about do I have anything to say about it, by now you know I have something to say about everything. <laughs> so don't tempt me. Second, uh, I'm a psychiatrist. So your question, we can get sucked into the narratives. And so I'm not dissing my profession, but it's also made it somewhat um, the pop psychology of the causality. There's barely correlation, let alone causality. But it's that how do you acknowledge that this is that the body alone is not enough, but also not get sucked into a story based on some theory. So you hear about trauma in the body or you know, uh, the, the gut brain. So every time you go pick a book, there is one theory. But it's okay to inform yourself of that because one thing missing in the apathetic kind of plateau is the lack of curiosity. But beware of people like me in terms of believing what I say about causes. It's just a theory. So I may say that one day I found this thing tension, and then, boy, I was sitting for an hour, and this insight came that this tension is because of this. You may have then the inclination to go chasing after a similar explanation while missing out on what's happening in reality. So that's the key thing, at least the teachers that tell us, and I, I believe it, is that it's more about asking the question and not going after a particular answer. Because the, the amount of causes that are led to this condition right now are so many that some of the big ones we need to be aware of, but some of the subtle ones just keep getting subtler and subtler and subtler. And, and if you followed, the, if you, some of you read some of the core teachings, one of the you know, foundational teaching, no pun intended, is the four foundations of mindfulness. And it's, the sequence is mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the feeling tone, mindfulness of the thoughts, and then mindfulness of the Dharma. So um, at least for me, boy, there is so much to work on, just the superficiality of my body, that underlying stories, perhaps another lifetime. So there's enough richness here. So that was the background. And so, well, that's interesting. What do you do? Uh, so the first thing is to recognize what's going on. I can't stress that enough because we are so good at escaping from anything that has, even has a whiff of unpleasantness. And that's the second foundation, which is the second foundation of mindfulness, which says that, Every physical sensation and every thought has a feeling tone. And the feeling tone is, is that this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, or this is boring. None of us ever dwells in that fine boundary because as soon as something is felt as pleasant, we've already gone towards it. And at the, the fraction of a second in which a sensation is felt as unpleasant, we are avoiding it. And so it's... It's how do you slow yourself down enough to, you say, I'm bored. It's a concept. And you, and you believe that you know what boredom means. 
So you go off into something else. That's why the body is so helpful is that the boredom comes from a distress and the distress is manifest in the body. And if you're forced to sit and listen to me here and you feel like you're trapped, then your mind goes off somewhere. So that in that in-between layer of the, the sensation that I'm trapped, that sensation of trapped is unpleasant and I want to get rid of this unpleasantness is one of the mechanics of fantasies. What I'm going to do tomorrow, what I did yesterday, what I'm going to do anywhere except this moment here. And so the body is giving you this moment of this restlessness that is the dis- this, this unpleasantness. It doesn't have to be big. I'm assuming many of you are a little uncomfortable right now, but it's not tormenting. But the mind somehow creates this big thing, so it would rather be at work on Tuesday than be sitting here for another half an hour listening to me. That's how pathetic it is. By the way, I was there just 10 minutes ago, or when I was meditating, so. I had the prospect of listening to me talk, so. So, um, so what do you do? So one thing that I begin talking about very regularly is that have, have some idea of what brings you to practice. And so, uh, pardon me again for those of you who've heard this before, is that, um, uh, you know, for many of us, our life circumstances are such that mindfulness is just a component of healthy lifestyle. And just like diet, exercise, uh, you know, having some good hobbies, this is a component of healthy lifestyle. That's all your life will allow you to do. You have busy work, kids at home, family commitments. So then don't put yourself under, under unnecessary pressure for, I have to meditate two hours a day on weekdays and then three hours on weekends. If you can't do it, then you set yourself this expectation and then reality, and then the friction causes dukkha and suffering. But since your life is busy, you don't even have time to connect to the dukkha, but then you're yelling at people in your life. Because there is a sense that, Instead of watching this silly soccer game, I should be meditating. So you're neither watching the game mindfully, nor are you meditating, but this tension is building. So have some you know, kindness, generosity towards yourself, and recognize that under these circumstances of my life, for the next six months or a year, I'll commit to meditation practice, but mainly as a component of a healthy lifestyle, and that's perfectly okay. To create a false premise for this practice Uh, you probably are going to set yourself for harm. But for those of us who have a little more time in our life to commit ourselves to this, then you know that just looking at it as a healthy habit only gets you to a certain point, because after a while, it is a boring habit. It's a tedious habit at times, especially on certain days when there are other temptations, either pulling you out or whatever else. There's enough reasons that you all have encountered So you need something else to hold you to this practice. And so the analogy I gave earlier, it's not sufficient for me to say I'm going to help my wife in so many ways or I'm not going to argue with her. After 24 years, it gets exhausting. If you beat my... No, no, no. (laughs) So it's... But it's that there is something, the framework that has to hold these tasks together. So without these individual uh, tasks... It just becomes a nebulous, I want to be a good husband. I want to have a good marriage. And blah, 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 and it doesn't get you anywhere. But if you just have these single line items, then these become mechanical line items, and my wife can clearly see that I'm just, you know, just doing it, and the tension will show. And so those are 
kind of captured in the first and the second uh, paths of the Eightfold Path. So another of the kind of core teachings is the Eight Noble Eightfold Path, and the first two are called Right View and Right Intention. And I'll try and explain that in a more um, uh, kind of simplistic way that I can understand. And so some teachers call it uh, secondary intention and primary intention. And primary is the sense of this wholesome aspiration that will hold you along the path, but it's a kind of a big container. So you're allowed to wander. So I'm allowed to have an occasional argument with my wife, but cheating, never. Same way, I can you know, make my point a little forcefully, but any kind of verbal, any kind of abuse, never. So if you make it really narrow that I'll never say a harsh word, then you keep failing. But if you give yourself a huge enough container, then you're going to keep wandering off. So that's that sense of right view and right intention is that acknowledge your weaknesses, failings um, when it comes to meditation practice or exercise or diet. You know, occasional hagen das is okay, uh, but daily hagen das is cheating if you want to diet. And so, so what's right? Three or four? Uh, don't get bogged down. So just in the early stages, four ice creams a week is okay. Three months into the practice, three and then two. Again, some of you know my ice cream freakness. But think of practice the same way. So um, this is from a psychologist named Kelly McGonigal, who wrote a great book called The Willpower Instinct. And so this is a very cognitive way of uh, modifying your habit. So you start off with um, these three um, kind of components. She calls it I willpower, I won't power, and then I want power. So if I want to uh, meditate, the will is the kind of a task. You have to do some behavioral change. But do it within reasonable limits. So I will meditate for 15 minutes a day, every day, or five days a week. You know, set something that is meaningful, that is practical, and then you can build up on that. But at the same time, it has to be balanced by I won't power. And then it's this, there are things that we do in our daily life that make this willpower difficult. Because as I mentioned earlier in, in other talks, even if you sit for an hour every day, solidly, mindfully, you can easily undo and then some um, by being completely mindless the rest of the day. So 10 hours of mindlessness can easily overcome an hour of mindfulness. So the won't power part is look at some of the couple of things that you do in your daily life that are counter to your commitment to uh, the sense of uh, connecting to daily practice. So it could be when you're driving, you'll turn the radio off, and then you will just be aware of how you react to traffic. And that's my, you know, one of my poisons. But you can figure out what you do. You can do it at meetings. You know, the meeting could be boring, you're squirming. But during that meeting, you can allow yourself one or two minutes to kind of come back to this, I won't just let my mind wander in the midst of a boring meeting. So just give yourself some, um, can, some reminders to... I won't just go back automatically to this wandering mind. Just pick whatever one. And then the I want is this wholesome right view, right intention. So um, I won't give you the examples of what worked for me eventually for mindfulness practice because this is a, a kind of encouragement for you to look at with, with regard to mindfulness practice. Can you come up with I will do this, I won't do this, 
and then I want this with regards to your mindfulness practice. Uh, and the next, uh, this, uh, the kind of next few steps that I'm going to talk about are all fairly routine and commonsensical, but I was amazed at how often I heard them in the first five, six years of my practice and this ignored. And those of you who've been to retreats, on the very last uh, talk of the retreat, the teacher will give you um, those guidelines about how to continue practicing once you go home. And if you've done one or two retreats, you know what they're going to say. And it becomes so practiced and rehearsed that you just kind of like, you know, waiting to see when you can go home. And that's the mistake we make is that so many things, even pearls of wisdom, can become so routinized, so cognitive in nature that you can ignore them. And so I'll repeat them just because I've had to literally repeat them to myself in order to uh, make some progress. So in terms of um, the broad right view, right intention, you have to be able to connect to some aspects of the teachings. I'm not talking about a sutta, anything big. It is that what is it about this Buddhist teachings as taught in the center and Vipassana style that really connect to you in a fundamental way? Not cognitive, not intellectual, but to your heart. And I bet it's that that brought you here this evening. There was something. And so, um, so for me, it's the notion of dukkha. And dukkha is not the bad things happening in life, but it is in the moments of good things where there is suffering here. And Jake pointed out that uh, what I mentioned two weeks ago, maybe a month ago on a Sunday evening here, resonated with him. And I'll repeat it here. So uh, I come here on a scooter in the spring and summer and fall. And, you know, we have Minnesota winters. So I waited for six, seven months to get to a day like this. And it was on a day like this that I was driving here from St. Paul, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago. Um, and I was at a traffic light when, because I'd been practicing mindfulness of body, I could sense the tension, the restlessness, waiting for the traffic light to turn from red to green. And I kid you, it was exactly a day like this, 72 degrees, blue skies, just a few wispy clouds, fresh green leaves, birds chirping, every, tech, you know, every tick item of a perfect day that I'd been waiting for seven months was surrounding me and I was waiting for the light to turn green. That is dukkha in action. Dukkha does not have to be social injustice because we pick the big ones, we fail at it, and then give up. But dukkha is on a beautiful day like this that we don't connect to it. Again, again, ask yourself, was it a good thing that made you come here, in which case you connect to the warmth, or was it that you completely missed out on that and you showed up here? But again, I'm being partly facetious, but it's so amazing how often we can get into it. Um, We were walking at a state park this afternoon, and this was the first walk in a while because of all the rain. And it's like, oh, look at that beautiful yellowish green leaf. Look at the sunlight through the leaves. It's like, it's craving. It's not connecting. Because if it was really connecting, I could have sustained it. Because three minutes into it, I'm already used to it. And we are neurologically wired to that. We are wired to become habituated, but then habituation then leads us to what's the next thing. Okay, then I ask a question to my wife about, hey, what do we do in November? You know, November is the next vacation. Really? 
It's June, 72 degrees, state park, everything, and my mind gets bored. And then you tell yourself, oh, I need to come back here. So think of Dukkha as um, a clash between expectations and reality. And so to me, that is the core teaching that really keeps me grounded. Um, so um, I have a leadership position at work, and um, say on a Friday, I discover something about a colleague, and I have to discipline this person on Monday. Um, try disciplining doctors. I can trust, tell you, root canal without anesthetic is easier. Uh, so the fact is, I have a colleague who misbehaved. Second fact is, I have to have an uncomfortable conversation on Monday, and they cause distress. But why should they ruin my Saturday and Sunday? Yeah, it ruins it, say, by a notch, say 20%. But there were times in the years past when it would completely ruin my entire weekend because I'm having these dialogues with this person on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And when Monday comes, it goes nothing like the way I rehearsed it. So the dukkha is not this person or what he or she did or the fact that I have to talk. The dukkha is that I'm not connecting to the weekend with what's going on here and now. So I could even be having my favorite ice cream and be thinking about disciplining this person. How pathetic. You know, it's that, 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 those are all the kind of really real-life experiences of dukkha. You don't need to think of anything fancy. So to me, that's what it took. And you know, when it comes to marriage, it's that there is something warm and sustaining about coming home. And home is not a physical place. It's a physical place with a person in a certain relationship. So it's, there is this kind of nebulous sense of comfort. And so, yeah, that makes everything else worthwhile, I think. And then, um, I, I, for me, the, I give a separate talk on faith. Uh, faith as in, where do you find the, the oomph to keep going in the midst of hindrances? But one aspect of that, very important aspect, was to um, have some trust and confidence in someone, a person in your life. And to me, beginning was you know, Mark, but then it's a combination of Mark, my wife, and then my boss at work, because all three are related to life. This is just a kind of a spiritual guidance. My wife is the life in my personal life, and then my boss at work. And they all mindfulness practice just goes flow seamlessly between the three realms. But you need to have some folks who can ask you awkward questions and also allow you the freedom to be able to doubt in their presence so that there is some way in these, at least for me, some of the kind of significant landmarks in my life occurred when these folks asked me some questions where it just was a cognitive shift. And so my one example was seven years ago when I was considering whether to become medical director or not. Um, my wife asked me the question, what are you afraid of? And there was never fear. My mind had never seen it as fear. For my mind, it was, I can't do this. I don't have the temperament. But they were all concepts. You know, I don't have the temperament caused me a fear that I'm going to screw up. And so there were many things, but my mind was stuck in externalities. You know, mental health feel is tough. You know, there's so many demands. People yell at you. All external but as soon as she said, what are you afraid of, it became about the dukkha of there is reality, there is the way this body relates to it, mind and body, 
and can I handle the dukkha? And once it was, I don't know, and that was the kind of challenge. So, so and you know, Mark has asked a couple of questions in terms of some other areas. So, um, see if you can connect to one or two people. It doesn't have to be a teacher or a spouse. It could be a good friend who uh, you feel comfortable opening to. Um, pick one or two teachers in the sense of the, the bigger teachers from IMS or England or uh, Spirit Rock, but make sure you stick to just give each of them at least two years. And if you do listen to Dharma Seed, uh, just avoid the temptation to go browsing from teacher to teacher to teacher. Uh, it's very easy, and that's another sense of restlessness. Uh, because what's happening is you hear a teacher, it gives you a zing, and you say, he's my or she's my teacher, and six months later, you're gone. It's because you've heard all the words. But the first inspirational connection has faded away. So the question is not that the teacher's message has changed, but your relationship to the message has changed. So that's where you want to find the uh, curiosity. And then some basic practices is, you know, as I said, you have to do it regularly, but don't commit to 30 minutes of practice at the beginning. 10 minutes twice a day is far more beneficial than 30 minutes two to three days a week. It's very commonsensical. We all keep falling off the wagon, but it's this way of doing it. There is no other way around the kind of basics of getting into the practice. And then the, be ready to meet your body and mind the way they present. So if you do like sitting meditation, just remember that on a day when your body is really either tired or buzzed and you're coming home from a busy day, I just don't expect it to sit down and settle down. So for that, have walking meditation or standing meditation, or perhaps just sit with your eyes open, not calling meditation, but just not do anything either. So don't, react, don't, don't be reactive to the distress of the busy day, but just see what it feels like to be restless, distressed, and just receive it as it is. And finally, commit not to buying another book until you've read all the books on your shelves. <laughs> And definitely don't buy a book titled 50 Ways to Mindfulness Practice. <laughs> Two or three ways are enough. That author needs to work on his or her mindfulness practice. <laughs> so we have about 15 minutes, so I hope it was a practical kind of talk. So hopefully it uh, springs some thoughts and questions. So, and there's a mic here. So I had an experience today very similar to what you shared. I was at a state park, and... Um, you know, I was walking, and I love, you know, that yellowish-green leaf and, and the, the same thing. And I'm curious because my mind went to um, gratitude, almost ecstatic joy, right? And I'm wondering whether or not that's keeping a layer of cognition between me and the experience. Like, you talked about going out of your mind to a, a vacation you're going to take in November. Is gratitude practicing it? kind of the same thing, because you're no longer in the moment, you're in your head having the experience of the moment, right? Right. And that's why, to your question about why the body, it's not just the body, it is the experience. So as far as we know, unless you are one of those saints who can apparently do multiple things at the same time, most of us, 99.99% of the people here, cannot multitask. And so if you are experiencing something, you're not thinking. And so therein lies that it's so difficult to hold your thought. 
as a thought that you can con yourself into thinking I'm thinking this thought when your mind's already gone off about the thought. I mean, if you, those of you who've done retreats, you can see in slow motion how much your mind can con you into believing whatever it wants you to believe. And so that's why the body, it's, it's that you acknowledge what you see and then try not to get into a description and a narrative. But it's so habitual for us um, that we can objectify almost everything. And so that's why the practice is about, you know, come back to the body and experience it until five seconds later, it's gone off. Because it experiences, it says, solid. Oh, I like solid. I like heavy. I'm, and it's gone. I don't need to give you examples, but that's the thing. So you can't counter it. All you can do is patient, persistently acknowledge thought is happening, and then you come back. The other, from a psychological perspective, the kind of the teaching, it's not a, um, a kind of core teaching, but from a psychological perspective, how the mind works, what I heard here about 15 years ago really blew my mind, literally, was that in medicine, in psychology, you learn about the five senses. You know, seeing, smelling, touching, seeing, or hearing, and tasting. But to classify thinking as a sense, as a sense gate was just amazing. Because I can't, it's just a, it's just a sense gate, meaning the mind's job is to think. And so the analogy that struck me was one day I was meditating here and I heard the bus go by. And that's when the insight occurred to me that I can no, I can no more stop my mind thinking than I can stop my ear from hearing. But I can choose not to listen. There is hearing and then there's listening. There is seeing and then there is kind of vision. And so every aspect of our sensation uh, has a what they call metacognition, there's something behind, and that's what our teachers talk about, awareness. Awareness is not the object. Awareness is the awareness of hearing is happening, thinking is happening, seeing is happening. So when you see that beautiful leaf and sunlight filtering through, you see for a fraction of a second, but you don't notice that seeing is happening. For me, it was, oh, darn, those leaves, this will be a transient thing. Or I saw the flowers falling. So I saw those um, um, lilacs. And lilacs are in bloom very late this year. And the amount of attachment to, it's so nice, but it's not. You know, it's the impermanence. There's a dukkha in the impermanence of a beautiful thing. But the last couple of years of practice has allowed me to slow things down enough for me to perceive that in each of these sensations, so there's this lilac in bloom, that has a craving feeling tone, but knowing that these things will be gone has the sadness feeling tone, so I look for what else is there to stimulate me. So, long convoluted answer, but later this year I wanted I want to go back to doing one of those workshops on finding wisdom in the body, and so I haven't done it in a couple of years, so I want to explore some of these things in an experiential way. So. Um. One of the things you were talking about is not necessarily to expect anything from meditation, uh, but one of the common practices that teachers will do is to set an intention before you meditate. And isn't that sort of setting an expectation or setting a goal or some sense of striving? So what is your thoughts about that? 
Right. There's aspiration and then there's goal. And the, the difference in aspiration is that I don't have, it's the humility, it's an honest recognition that the only thing in my power is what I can do in this moment. Goal sets up, I want that. Aspiration is, may this happen. So when you send metta, or even when you decide about practice, there is a difference between, I want to be at peace 15 minutes from now, versus, may, may I be at ease 15 minutes from now. But there is an honest acknowledgement that what determines my state 15 minutes from now is really not in my control, because there's so much going on in the background. And for me, again, uh, this was at a retreat with uh, Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters several years ago. Um, so based on previous retreats, I had come to expect that on the third and fourth day of the retreat, it's blissful peace. I, I'm at ease and, you know, all the attaching things. Except this particular retreat, I'm sitting there, my mind is fairly calm, I see all these random thoughts coming, but my body is flushed. And my heart rate's at about 78 to 82. My resting heart rate's about 68 to 70. And it was uncomfortable. So it was a, a, a strange situation of being completely at ease while my body is saying there's danger. And so but by the time I knew that it was just what it was. You know, some teachers would say it's kleshas. It's the defilements that are coming through. It's still a story. So to your question, you can, if it's, I have this physical sensation, and I may say, oh, maybe it's just the defilements coming up, or it is that now that my mind is settled, all the underlying you know, distress, all the frustrations that I bottled up at work, etc., surfacing. But that explanation can't be the final one. You just acknowledge it, and then come back to the body. So the same with aspiration is that may I be there is a way of softening. It's a way of acknowledging that it's not a wanting. That's the difference. There, when you set a outcome, set, set an outcome, there is wanting. There is attachment to it. When it doesn't happen, there is a sense of distress and failure. Um, and then aspiration is it's what it is. I mean, I may, uh, you know, you could have, you could enter marriage with the sincerest of aspirations, and it may fail. So, is it always a sense of failure? Um, and I heard the, the other way I found energy was. There was a Olympic, Winter Olympics uh, skier or somebody uh, who had prepared for, what, four years, six years, and the uh, week before the, the championships, uh, he got injured. And is that how he said, well, I have to heal and I have to get ready for the next Olympics. So if he had set himself the goal of, uh, of not as I have to participate, that blow would have been brutal. Whereas for him, it was more an aspiration. I'll do everything possible for me to be able to compete in the Olympics. We're just kind of cycling over. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to share, um, you know, recently, I mean, I've been doing mindfulness practice for about 10 years, but Recently, I've really kind of started investigating some of the habitual patterns in my mind relating to, like, afflictive um, states um, and especially relating to self. And, in, and at, there was just moments um, 
where it was just so intense um, that, you know, I just basically started using this kind of mind, this body awareness type technique and found a lot of um, reliability in it. And it was seemed to become a very useful tool. But um, I then kind of, as a function of time, became curious of like, is that also like sort of avoidance, you know? Like is it, you know, better to maybe spend some time being just aware of the type of kind of habit energy that comes up in the mind and not always just go to the body? (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know, but I just, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Again, I have thoughts about everything. (laughs) You're a captive audience. So again, little plug here. So this year, I am not doing my pain workshop, and instead, I'm doing a series of workshops on the Eightfold Path. Um, so the next workshop's on the middle component of a wise action on June 30th. But the late summer into fall will be the last three components, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So really, I want to explore some of the, some of the more detailed aspects of what you just asked. Um, so I think what you said is, does it feel lazy? So I'll give the advice I, I heard from Ajahn Suchito, and this helped me a lot, um, which is we are very good at the why question. Why is this happening? So in so many aspects of our life, often that's the thing to do. You have a problem. You can't wait 10 years to try and solve it uh, mindfully. So some, there are many problems in life that need, you need to be able to figure out the cause and then implement some changes so as to solve it. But we do that so often that we then treat all problems in life in a linear way. There is a problem, look for one or two causes, conclude that you know what the cause is, and then act on it. Uh, And so that's when we end up with so many other problems in life where sometimes being with the problem is often the answer as opposed to trying to fix it. The just do something is a very reactive energy and trust me, in my field, it's all about just do something. You know, because we medicalized human existence, so anyone who has a negative human emotion is depressed. Depressed means they're ill, meaning they need a pill and all that stuff. So, uh, so Ajahn Suchito talked about, you know, so the, the whole container idea also came to me from him. I mean, he, he talked about connect with the energy level in your body, and then give your mind a large enough container. So on the most restless day, you need a container the size of this room, perhaps even with your eyes open, and still you may find your mind wandering. So that's one thing. And the second one is, once you feel like you're settled in with some physical aspect of your, uh, some real aspect of your present moment, then ask the question, what is happening? And then it's, the what is more a pointer, it's, as they say, the finger pointing at the moon, the what question is just to get you to the moon so that you can observe the moon. So what is happening keeps coming, bringing you back to the body and gets you away from trying to answer the question. Before we even know what is happening, we've gone to an answer. Okay, I have tightness. I have tension. Tension is caused by this. And we've gone on to a story, and you don't know where you are. And that's why I'm now as convinced as I can be that the teachers were right. Because I was the same. I'm a psychiatrist. I need to analyze things through. But 
it's all it's been more of a problem than a, a benefit. But I, I can also say with confidence that having done this, what is happening, what is happening with the body, I've had tremendous benefit, especially at work. You know, I'm sitting there with a colleague having a difficult conversation. This why is this happening is all about he's a jerk, he's doing this, I hate my job, blah, blah, blah. But what is happening is that under these circumstances, this level of distress is what's happening. And so I don't pretend that I'll be any less distressed because under those circumstances, that level of tension is inevitable. And same, many of you have heard me say, I give these talks now with some regularity, but for the seven, eight minutes before I start the guided mindfulness meditation, my heart rate's at about 90-95. And I have this tightness in the stomach. Why? Doesn't matter. After five years of doing this, I think that's my state of affairs. So come back to the why question. Come back to the what's happening as opposed to why is this happening. Yeah, thank you. That's very useful. I I think you know the one part of it I'll just quickly share is that a you know a um, ant sort of analyzing mind can very quickly become a reality before you know it, and it could you know yeah. then you're then you kind of just get swept away, and so it's like. Yeah, kind of a balancing. So, right. thank you. Thank you. I think we come to the end of the talk. Jean may have some announcements. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.